So if you want to find, if you have a Bible on your phone, oh, where are we going? Here we go. I'm going to get something over here. Timmy didn't bring it to me. All right. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter two, guys. That's where we're going to be today. Philippians chapter two. It's in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And we're gonna be going through the first 11 verses. Um, so if you wanna turn there, I'm gonna do something a little different. I don't normally read from the message um, to start out because the message, if you're like, what is that? It's a book, it's a Bible that was translated by a guy named Eugene Peterson. It's a transliteration. It's kind of, it's something that puts it into our common language. But this, this version about this passage is so critical and I want you guys to really hear it. So will you do something that maybe you don't often do when you read the word? Will you stand with me? for the reading of the word. And uh, and if you try to follow along in the Bible you have, it's gonna be a little confusing, but hold your place there because we're gonna preach from that. I'm just gonna read it from the message. So here we go. Philippians chapter two. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out and praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, so, this is, this is a significant passage for so many reasons, but one of the things I think that Paul's tapping into is this inherent, almost universal desire in all people from across cultures, from across time, from across all kinds of spectrums. There's this desire that lives in us, and it's this desire to be known perfectly and to be loved perfectly. Like we, I mean, we may articulate it in different ways, but we want people to know us. And I don't mean like that shallow version of what we kind of present to people through social media and even what people may even get here and there. But I mean that true self that's hiding in there that we want people to know it and then we want people to still love us. Like that's a, that's a longing that, that is in us and that's a longing that gives us a picture of what the kind of community we'd wanna be a part of. And when you've tasted some of that in your life, it's intoxicating. Like you wanna come back to it over and over again and capture it. And today what you're seeing is that Paul's writing about that type of community, a community where people are not known perfectly yet and not loved perfectly yet, but they're growing into the image of Christ and they have this great hope. And so we're gonna to look tonight, so I don't know if you take notes, but if you wanna, a few words, we're gonna look at the hope of this kind of community. So one word you could write is hope. 
A second word we're gonna see, though, is the sickness that destroys this type of community. So we'll see the hope, we'll see the sickness, and then we're gonna see the cure, the cure for this type of community and where, and where we can find it. So we're, we're gonna be in Philippians. Um, in Philippians chapter one, at the end of it, y'all didn't look at this passage last week, but verse 27, Paul says it like this. He says about this hope, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's like, I wanna see you fighting together side by side. And then in verse two of Philippians, he says, Philippians chapter two, he says, complete my joy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So I think the question we could ask is, is this type of community even possible? Like a community where regardless of our economic, sorry, social economic background, regardless of our education, regardless of our race, regardless of anything that we've done morally or immorally, that we could be one, where we could fight together and serve one another and consider one another brothers and sisters, a real unified community. If it's not possible, then why is Paul writing about it? And if it's not possible, then on the night that Jesus was about to be arrested and betrayed, when he died for us, he spends the whole evening praying. And in John chapter 17, the Gospel of John, it's recorded what he prays for, and almost every verse that he's praying for the church is praying for unity. He says things like, I pray that the people who believe in me, that they will be one, as the Father and I are one, so that the world will see their unity and know that my love is real. Like, he prayed that prayer. And then after he dies and he's resurrected, the Spirit of God fills the church, and all of a sudden, people start to experience this type of community. Here's a description of the early church from Acts. It says, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, listen to this, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So all of a sudden, the Spirit fills his people and they start to experience this type of community. And I've been a Christian for about 20 years. I've seen glimpses of this. I've been a part of it. It's not easy, but it's incredible. So the question is, if that's the hope that Paul's writing about, and if that's the prayer that Jesus is praying for, and if it's what the Spirit starts to bring in the church, why don't we see more of it? And it's because of this sickness, this disease that, that we see in us and that we see around us. So we're gonna look at the symptoms of the disease, and then we'll look at the sickness itself. Um, and you see it in, if you look in, in your passage in Philippians 2, verse three and four, it says this, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So look at the symptom that he says actually starts to break down this community. So he wants to see people of one mind, one heart, fighting together, regardless of who you are, regardless of your background. And he says, if that's gonna happen, we cannot pursue selfish ambition and vain conceit. But it's like, wait a second. Selfish ambition, that, that like epitomizes me on a good day. 
Like, and that's the culture we drink in every day. We've been told since the moment we could remember anything that you do you. Like you're an American, you make your own way. You're entitled to your life. It's your life, you only live once, do it. And so this whole idea of not being selfish with our time, our treasure, our talents, our life, that's pretty counterintuitive if we're American. And yet that's what Paul is saying is is one of the symptoms that destroys real community. When we're like, man, my life, my needs before yours, we're, we're breaking down the very things that we need. And then the other word, conceit, is a little bit maybe harder to understand. It comes from a Greek word that means empty glory. So selfish ambition, we see that, but he says don't pursue selfish ambition, but also don't pursue glory that is ultimately empty. What is he talking about? He's talking about the the fact we were created by God, for God, in God's image means we were created for glory. Amazing glory. Glory is a fancy word for importance, significance, weight, value, honor, we were created for all those things, but because we don't have a relationship with God because of sin, we're still hungry for the glory that he alone can give. So we're always looking, whether it's our career or our body or, or our family or some type of achievement or something we possess or something that someone says about us, we want glory and we want it to stick. But what he's saying is if it's not glory that comes from God, it's ultimately empty because it will fade. Because think of this, whatever isn't truly rooted in God and blessed by God will not last. The best things in life outside of God's blessing will fade. Your career will end. Your looks will go. Your athletic ability, Timmy, will not be there in about six weeks. You know, it's going away. The best relationships, even husbands and wives who love each other, those relationships break down and die eventually. And so whatever glory we try to find here and hold on to, if it's not in God, it fades. And he's saying that is destroying true community. So think for a moment, like all of us, Probably, if we're gonna be honest, we can think of moments where we're like, man, I was pretty selfish in that. That was all about my glory. That wasn't about others. It was about my name. It wasn't about people. Sometimes it's comical when we look back, and sometimes it's pretty hurtful. For me, I have lots of all of those stories, but I'll give you a comical one that led to, I'm sure, people being hurt, including me. But I was in Europe on a mission trip, and on this team that I was with, this is years ago, before I was married, like, there was a girl, and this girl was... She was beautiful, and I'm like, man, if this girl likes me, if I can get her to like me on this trip, this will be everything. Like, I will be complete. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it made a lot of sense then. And so the entire trip, even though we're getting to preach the gospel in in Belarus and in Ukraine and, and in Poland, I'm worried about if I'm impressing this girl. So there was another guy on the trip, and the best way to impress the girl is to be better than the other guy. And so constantly through the trip, I just kept trying to find ways to one up him. So we're in Paris and we're, we've landed at the airport, we're down at the bottom of the airport, and there's a, there's a train that takes you from the airport into the city, and it's 2 a.m., and there's no one in the airport except for us. And so we have all the bags of our team on these two luggage carts. I have one, he has one. And I see a long stretch, looks like 100 meters. And I'm like, hey, I'm faster than you, let's go. And the girl's like, okay, I'll go down there. And it was like so stupid, like fast and furious, stupid style here. And she's gonna be like, okay, on your marks, get set, go. And so I'm pushing about 800 pounds of bags. He's pushing about 800 pounds of bags. And like, I'm gonna win. And, and so we're racing, and why I'm racing, I'm looking to see that I'm ahead of him, and I am, but I'm not looking to see that I'm fading a little bit to the left. And to the left, right at the finish line, is a metal bench that is, is that is bolted into the ground. So I cross the finish line, I'm like, sucka, and then as I do it, I run straight into the metal bench with the cart. Now, physics takes over, and I'm not great, but I understand a little bit that the, 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 the bench being, met, you know, 
bolted into the ground is not moving. So the cart that was moving probably at 10 miles an hour at best, all of a sudden stops. The bags fly 30 feet with all of our valuables, all the things we've been buying, and I run into the cart, leg splits open, and then I shoot over the cart because you keep going, and so blood's going everywhere, and my stuff is flying, the police come down, my brother who's the team leader is like, why did you just break all of our stuff? And so vainglory, selfish ambition, there I was. And the girl wasn't impressed, obviously. You know? So it's like, that's a comical moment, but we've all had moments that were probably more serious. So here's the thing. Is this just Paul like being grumpy, talking about, hey, selfish ambition and vain conceit because he's just a, a super legalistic, moral person? Or is, this, is he on to something? Does this kind of attitude actually tear down community and tear us down? So I'm gonna read a blog post from an agnostic professor at Brooklyn College. So what does he see? He says, I've been increasingly preoccupied with a basic question. Why is everybody such a wreck? And then he gives a list. He says, first, we have this vast intellectual architecture telling us that physically attractive hierarchies are cruel and unfair, but we still care about being hot and we judge each other about it. True? Next, we have a self-help culture that constantly tells you that you're a ray of brilliant, unique light that alone can shine away in a dark world. Next, we have a woke marketing culture that sells us products by selling you to yourself. And then there's this gym ad near his house that he said re that reads, join the body acceptance movement. It's like, if we are, then why do we have to join the gym? Anyway, so also, he says, we have social media tools to craft perfect idealized versions and visions of ourselves, curated to the millimeter, so we can present exactly what we want to present to the world, and none of this is working. None of it works. I see people in New York who are the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betray a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who project cool at all times, who are popular, getting plaudits and positive affirmation at all times, who are academically and professionally successful, and yet their lives reveal that they hate themselves. None of that stuff seems to matter. None of it gets at the core of self-hatred within, and I'm beginning to wonder if this is the human condition. So, that's just the opinion of an agnostic professor surveying what he's seeing in himself and around him. And it is the core of the human condition because he's describing sin. Instead of turning us outward toward God and others, it turns us inward. And now we're left with this, this, all this energy saying, okay, how can I make myself? How can I create this picture of health and, and honor? But we end up walking around like imposters. And Paul's saying there's something better and so right in the middle of it, he's like, okay, so those are symptoms, but what's the real problem behind the problem? The, if the symptom is, is, is the selfish ambition and vain conceit, the problem behind it is pride. So if you want a simple definition of pride and then we're gonna compare it to humility, pride is saying my life is mine and my life before yours. So the prideful person says my life is my own and my needs before your needs. Humility is the opposite. Humility says, your needs before mine. Your life before mine. Pride is the disease that gets into our hearts and kills true community. But humility is this picture. He says, he says don't do anything in selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, so he's like, of course you have to look to your own interest, but also look to the interests of the other. So he's describing humility, and humility is this amazing quality that actually gives 
gives unity in a, in a community a chance to grow. So the only way we'll be one-minded one and have one heart and have a shared passion and a shared love for each other is if humility wins the day. That, that desire where we move toward one another and say, you know what, what do you need today instead of what do I need? Because if we're all fighting for our individual needs, then no one's fighting for each other. And so humility says, you know what, I'm gonna move into community with courage and gentleness. How can you have courage and gentleness? How can you have honor and mercy? You can have it if you have humility before God. Because humility sees God first, and you see God as this holy, amazing, eternal creator. And so that, in a sense, gives you a whole lot of gentleness because you're amazed that a holy king would love you. Because you know you don't deserve it. So you can be gentle and merciful toward other people because you know they don't deserve it. So you're not putting, holding them to something that God doesn't hold you to. But it also gives you incredible courage when you see God for who he is because you remember that that God calls you his son that God calls you his daughter, that God adopts you and calls you his own. And so that gives you such honor that you can move into community with courage and gentleness in a way that people cannot masquerade that quality unless it's God producing it in them. And so what you see humility starting to do, it starts to flow out of people who are saying, man, I'm gonna die to myself today. I'm gonna personally die to my plans in order to bring life into a community. This is how one author put it. He says, we have hundreds of opportunities every day to build community or to deconstruct true community. How? This laying down of life always entails a death. So if you're gonna practice humility, you have to die. It is death in effect to my 10 minutes when I give them over to help you do something, get something done. It is death to your privilege if you let someone else in urgent need cut in the line in front of you. The my life for yours principle is the only one on which any life at all is possible. To embrace it is to live, but to refuse it, to live by my life for me, is to spiritually die and spread death. There it is, heaven or hell lurking in your living room every single day. So his point is, every day you have thousands of chances, thousands of opportunities, thousands of little invitations to either choose to die to your plans and serve someone else, and when you do that, you're resurrecting new life into that community, or you can choose to fight for your own needs, and in that you're spreading death. Every time we choose to serve community and to put others before ourselves, what ends up happening is someone else, if they receive that service, if they receive your help, if they express their need and you move toward them and they, they receive it and then they say thank you, you know what just happened? A bond was forged because true community is built on vulnerability and interdependence. True community is built on each of us knowing that we need one another, but if we're all running around pretending we don't need each other, then we never truly can experience what community is supposed to give us, which is this safe place to fight for each other. And so the moment you move away from your own needs to serve other people, and the moment that person receives that and says, thank you, there's something special that just happened, and all of a sudden, real community is starting to grow out of that. And it comes from humility, so you're like, okay, great. So how do I get humility? Humility is a pretty weird characteristic to develop because like if you really, really try to be humble, you end up being proud, right? So it's like, man, what if I look at Timmy tomorrow and I'm like, dude, I was so humble today. He's like, you just lost it, you know? And if you walk up to your friend, you're like, you're the most humble person I know, that's probably the worst thing you can say to them. So how do you know you're growing in humility? One of the best ways to know you're growing in humility is to focus on the opposite of humility, the symptoms of pride. So I'm gonna ask you some questions and I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna be answering them myself so it's not just me coming after you. These are some of the symptoms 
of pride. And when they're in our life, we can see that they're the opposite of what Christ is trying to birth in us through humility. So here's one symptom that pride might be ruling our hearts. Are you the great fault finder? Are you the great fault finder? The prideful person finds the speck in his brother's life and disregards the plank in his own eye. That's from a saying that Jesus said, deal with your own plank in your eye before you go and deal with the speck in your brother's eye. So he says the prideful person always sees the little things wrong in someone else and they disregard their own sin. This person tends to focus on the negative in someone else, filtering out any of the positive. The person's when they, when they rationalize, when, they, when this person sees someone else struggling, they rationalize saying, well, that's just indicative of that person. That's who they are. They identify them with their failure. But when this same person fails, they say, oh, I was just having a bad day. You know what I mean? Like, so this person is a jackass, sorry, um, but this person is, this person's having a bad day and they're like, that's it. I just, you know, man, someone cut me off. But when Timmy's acting like that, they're just like, that's just Timmy. You know, so they're, so they're not gracious in that. So this person will hear a message, and some of you might even be hearing it right now, you're hearing a message, you're like, man, I, cannot, I can't wait till I tell someone else because they need to work on their pride. You know, so you immediately know who needs to hear this. The humble person, though, and the fault finder, they know that they're aware of their own faults, and they focus most of their attention on dealing with their own stuff. The next one is, do you have a harsh spirit? It's similar to the fault finder, but it comes out a little differently. Do you have a harsh spirit? Pride tends to speak harshly about the struggles and sins of other people, leaving no room for grace, just judgment. The harsh spirit assumes the worst when noticing another person's struggles. There's no generosity when considering another person's advice, opinion, or position on a matter. The humble person will at least treat others with the same respect and gentleness that he or she receives from Christ. Now here's another one. It's, I would say it's superficiality. So if you're a prideful person, there tends to be a, a great sense of superficiality in your life, or the way I would put it is you're trying to cheat the system. So in the scripture, you'll hear this common mantra, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And so I think some of us have figured out how to curb um, our, our desire to get glory, and we're like, you know what? I'm gonna choose humility. I'm gonna choose to serve. I'm gonna choose to do things that other people are gonna notice so that I can be lifted up. And so you might be playing the game of humility and service, but ultimately you're not serving God or others, you're serving yourself. And so it's incredibly superficial because if people are watching you, you'll do the thing that you need to do. But if people aren't watching you, there's a whole different lifestyle going on. And you'll confess sin that makes you look bad to other people, but you really won't deal with the deep heart sins that are, that are keeping you from trusting God and loving people. So there's a superficiality that's, that's ruling in our heart instead of just being honest and vulnerable in front of other people. And I'll give you one more. I've got more, but here, here's one more. Are you constantly unhappy and full of self-pity? Like, how is that a symptom of being proud, being arrogant? The prideful person is filled with self-pity because they are certain they know how, they, how life should go and they know they deserve a good life. And so often the person who's always full of self-pity and constantly unhappy is the person who's always thinking they're not getting what they deserve and they're mad at everyone for it, including God. The humble person knows that we deserve to be cast off by God and yet we're thankful for God's grace. And so one of the weird things about pride is that it's obvious to spot pride in the loud, boastful, arrogant person, but pride also rules the day in the person with low self-esteem because pride is thinking about yourself. 
it's being consumed with yourself. And some of us think about ourselves and we think we're amazing. And some of us think of ourselves and we are devastated because we think of ourselves. And humility, I think C.S. Lewis, an author in the 20th century, an English author, probably put it the best when he said, humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. You get that? He says, humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself, but it's about thinking about yourself less. So here's the question we should be asking. Then God, what do you want from me? Because if humility is the key to living in a community where there's great unity, and yet it's so elusive to all of us because of the selfish, selfishness that often reigns in our souls and our, and our motives, then what do we do? Does God want you just to work harder? Does he want you just to feel guilty right now and overwhelmed? And, and does he want you just to you know, try to produce this type of community and try to manifest this type of humility? No, because it wouldn't work. Think about times in your life where you experience the greatest change. If real things happen, not just like a high moment and then we go back to where we really are, if real things start to change in our life, it's because we, we intersect with something glorious and big, something so beautiful and so worthy that we can't but stop and behold it. And the more we behold it, the more we want our loves to be reordered by it, right? Like that, that, that can go from art to sports to a person, but when it gets up to the level of God, then it starts to really reshape our hearts. And so Jesus doesn't want you to work harder to try to create this kind of community because you would ruin it. He wants you to stop and look more deeply at who he is and what he's done for us. And so let me read the second half of this passage to you in Philippians 2. And guys, there, this, th these words, starting in verse five, are nothing short of amazing. Like maybe they're the most precious words in the entire Bible, and I don't say that in any way as an exaggeration. I'm gonna read them. You tell me if I'm exaggerating. Verse five Paul looks at the church and he says, have this attitude, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying this whole idea of walking in humility, serving one another, counting others more significant than yourself. He says, have this mind. He's telling you to do something, but he says, it's already your mind. It's already your heart. Why? Because it's yours in Christ. And then he explains, verse six, who, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is by far one of the richest theological musings in the entire Bible, and yet it is here for the most practical purposes. It is here to remind us and to show us how this real community can come about through Jesus and in Jesus. This is ours. Who is he? Think with me for a moment. It's saying he, though he was in the very form of God, that means that Jesus is God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He, there's never been a moment where Jesus did not exist and there will never be a moment where he will not exist. He is and he was and he will always be. He is the eternal one. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is the creator of all things. He is not created. He is the word that is eternal. He is everything. And so he was in the form of God, but something happened 
He, he, didn't wanna, he didn't have to grasp to it. Like He didn't have to go around telling everybody. He didn't need his own personal marketing person saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at him, he's great. He was willing to lay all of that aside by coming to earth. And, he, and the word here is that he emptied himself. And what did he empty himself of? Look, he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He continued to be God. Do you know what he emptied himself of? His glory his prerogatives, his rights to be worshiped, his reputation, his name. And how did he do that? By becoming a human being, by putting on human flesh, by putting us on, by wearing this body and walking through our lives. So the perfect God-man became a perfect human. And he was a servant. Not, not just any glorious king, but he came as a servant. So like, Aladdin, I have kids. I would watch it even if I didn't have kids. But Aladdin, Jasmine wants to get out of the palace, right? Right? She wants to go and walk around. And what does she do? Does she want to go as the princess? No, she wants to just be able to blend in. So she puts on a disguise and she's walking and smelling and eating and doing different things. But she's still the princess. It's just hidden under there. Nothing really changed. But for Jesus, everything changed. Without ceasing to be God, he puts on humanity, and for him, that wasn't just a day. It wasn't just like a frolic on the earth. It was his entire life. And think about how he pops into this life, how he enters this world. He doesn't enter into a great family with power and security. He doesn't enter into Rome like the capital of the world. He doesn't enter into great fanfare and, and glory. He enters to some teenage parents who are peasants surrounded by shepherds and animals. And he's on the run for the first few years of his life as a refugee because there's a king who wants to murder him. And he's raised under the scorn and under, and under the mocking of he's the son of a bastard because they thought he was born out of, out of, out of wedlock, out of marriage. And so that's how he came into the world, not as this glorious king, but as a humble, lowly servant. And do you know why it's so important that that's the manner by which he chose to enter our space and the manner by which he chose to live life, the manner by which he, he chose to experience the highs and lows of being a human, the highs and lows of having siblings and parents and friends? Man, he did everything you and I do except sin. He perfectly trusted the Father, but he got tired. He bled, he cried, he was disappointed, he doubted, he was tempted, but why did he choose to come this way? He chose to come this way because if he had come another way, if he had come with all the pomp and all the reputation and all the glory that we esteem so deeply in our lives, all the things that we think materially and socially make us important, if he had chosen those things, if he had come into the world with those things and he had lived with those things, then you and I would always associate godliness and Christ-likeness with those things. And that's what we would have pursued. If we had a picture of Jesus having great long hair and this great beard and, and, and blue eyes and whatever color skin you wanna put on, that every single one of us, we'd wanna look that way physically and we'd wanna have whatever he had. We'd wanna ride the camel he rode or whatever truck he would have driven. Like that's what we would have said is great. But Jesus didn't come that way so that the things that draw our heart to him are not material and social, but they are life-changing, eternal, glorious, sacrificial realities that change the very deep, the depths of who we are. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus, and this is how it describes him. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, but he's borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the theme. It says he humbled himself by becoming a servant and lived a life of humility. We know all about being humbled. Like I was humbled when I grabbed the wrong racket the other day. I was humbled when I lost 11 to zero. Um, It might've been my partner, I don't know. But (laughs) Jesus humbled himself. He chose this and it said it led him to a life of obedience and death on a cross. And so if you're new to the whole thing about crucifixion, let's be very clear. This is not, this is not gladiator Maximus. This is, not, this is not this glorious moment where Jesus is leading his armies and he's fighting against the enemies and he lays down his life so that everyone can live and everyone's chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like, man, this is not the hero's death that we would write for ourselves. This is the death of a common criminal who's tried and who's and who's publicly tortured and beaten and then drugged through the streets, stripped down and executed so that all could laugh at him. This is the king of glory, the creator of the ends of the universe, and his creation is fighting against him, and there is nothing that's keeping him on the cross other than his love for us. That's the death that he faced for us. All the glory that we so desperately long for has always been his, and he said, I lay it all aside because I wanna bring life to you. Because here's the truth. The judgment that Christ took is the judgment you and I deserve. We deserve to sit under the, under the judgment of God, but Jesus Christ left the very blessing that we longed for in order to give us the blessing that only he deserves. That's what he was doing on the cross that day. That's what he was doing for us so that we would see forever a picture of death and ultimate resurrection. Because think about it, we'll, we'll, we'll lose community, we'll lose ourselves, we'll lose God in order to cling to things that we can't keep that won't go with us after we die. And Jesus freely lays aside everything we think is so valuable in order to come after you and me. And not to come after you and me to crush us and to give us a long list of all the things that we've done wrong and all the ways we'll fail him and all the things that we need to do in order to get even with him, but he just comes after us to love us so that in him we are made whole and in him we will find a community where you can be known and you can be loved for all of eternity. That's in Jesus Christ alone. So so think about this with me as we close. Like, do you think we need this? Do you think personally we need to lay aside selfish ambition and empty glory in order to be forgiven and restored and brought into a community where our worth and our reputation and our name is not determined by how high we climb or how much we make or what color our skin is, but it's determined by the greatness and the love of Jesus Christ alone. Do you think we need that? Do you think our world needs that? We have a evil person right now in a country invading another country because of selfish ambition and vainglory. We have a man that's toward the end of his life dreaming about a former day 
of an empire that is long gone. And even if that man was able to take that country, and even if he took other countries in Europe, and even if he died with all of that in front of him, he will be left empty when he stands before the Lord. And it would be easy for us to look at someone like him and say, man, that's what evil is. But the truth is, though he's doing it on a macro level, that same evil lives in all of us. That desire to get more and to make everything about ourselves is what drives us away from God and what drives us to destroy community. And what Jesus has come in the gospel to do is to restore the very name that we were created to live under. He's come to restore you and me. And so what will we do today? Because in Christ and in Christ alone, we can stand and we can stand with other brothers and sisters from every family, from every nation, from every background, and we can stand there equal, not above, not under anyone, because we all have the same Savior and Lord. That's the type, amen, come on. That's the type of community that Jesus lived for. That's the type of community that Jesus died for, and that's the type of community that Jesus is resurrected for, because he reigns today. He's not just this memory of a great leader. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he reigns from heaven, and he brings true life to those who repent and trust him. And this, this pattern that he lived of laying aside life and dying for others and seeing the resurrection that comes after that is the very pattern that we are praying for in this church right now. Because being changed by Jesus is not just once and forever. You don't just come to him one time and say, I need you. We come to him every single day saying, Lord, help me. Not because you stopped loving me, but because I need more of your love. I need to be reminded of your love. And that is what leads us to each other. And we say, hey, I need you. And you know what? Today, even though it feels so counterintuitive to everything I see and everything I drink in for my culture, I wanna help you because when I'm dying to my plans and I'm serving you, true community is being resurrected. The very vision of a family and a community that is known and loved is birthed out of a billion little deaths and a billion little resurrections that happen as we care about each other because Jesus is everything we need. The very thing that keeps us from doing that is the fear that if we serve others, we will miss out. But how could you miss out? How could you miss out if Jesus is the treasure and the glory that never fades? And if Jesus did all of what he did in order to not simply be exalted, but to bring you into his presence so that at his name you would bow and at his name you would confess your Lord and you're my Lord forever. So what do you do with that? If you're here and you've never, you've never trusted him, like you've never stopped living and playing the game of trying to accumulate your own name, your own reputation, and you've never stopped just trying to satisfy your own desires for glory, then the invitation for you tonight is to repent. That means turn from whatever you were putting your hope in and put your hope in the one who is unchanging and relentless in his love and his compassion. Trust him tonight. Let him wash you. Let him love you. Let him restore you. Let Jesus be your king. And if you're here and you've already done that, but you sense that there's still a lot of selfishness that's growing like me, then the invitation is to continue to see Jesus as the hope, the hope of true glory. 
to see his example, to see his movement, to see his death and his resurrection as the pattern of real life and to move more deeply into that with others because you and I were made to thrive alongside other broken people who are being made whole in Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer that this church becomes a light and a community that actually manifests this prayer, this reality, this promise, that we would be one mind, one heart, that we would fight side by side for the faith of the gospel for each other and for the lost that are in this city so that more people would come to know Jesus Christ. So will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are holy and you are gracious and we cry out to you, Lord, We cry out to you through Jesus and we know that you hear us and that you love us and that in Christ, we have everything we need. Lord, I pray for your mercy to wash over people. I pray that, Lord, we would not be afraid to come to you in openness and brokenness, but that, Lord, we would just say, have mercy upon us, O Lord, that we wouldn't play games, that we wouldn't posture, but that we would just be honest tonight with you. And that in that moment, we would sense your favor, your delight, your forgiveness, your hope, that we would see Jesus in ways that we could never see if your spirit hadn't opened our eyes to see it. Lord, I pray that that would continue to fuel a community here that is unlike the world. Fuel a community that says, your needs before mine, your life before mine, Feel a community that daily dies to itself in order to be resurrected to a truer picture of forgiveness and mercy and hope. We pray this in your mighty name, amen.